0: Life Jam Live Video Podcast. This is the last episode of season three, and oh my gosh, do we have a treat for you today? I have Mary Beth O'Connor, author of the epic memoir, and I, I do mean epic, from junkie to judge: one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. Give us a wave, Mary Beth. She's going to come in in a second. I call this episode "Writing About Trauma and Recovery," and you're going to see why. Um, I'm going to read Mary Beth O'Connor's bio, and then we'll get into the interview. She's also going to read a passage so you all can hear her wonderful voice. So here's her bio. Mary Beth O'Connor is a director, secretary, and founding investor for the She Recovers Foundation and a director for Life Rings Secular Recovery. A graduate of Berkeley Law School in 2014, she was appointed a federal administrative law judge, and she retired in 2020. She has been sober since 1994, and like I said, she is the author of the memoir "From Junkie to Judge: One Woman's Triumph Over Addiction." Over one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction, and that word trauma is really important. We're going to talk about it. Hi, Marybeth O'Connor.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Such an honor to have you, everyone. I put a link to the book in the comments. Please get her book. Mary Beth, do you want to start out by reading us a passage from your beautiful literary memoir?
1: Sure, and I will start from the beginning. Okay, the camera's just on you. I'm here in the background. Okay. Chapter one, my first shot. When I graduated from my New Jersey high school in 1979, I was an honor student and a junkie. I don't mean I smoked a lot of weed or popped too many pills, I shot speed daily methamphetamine to the chemist, crank in my hometown, crystal in modern terminology. I hit a nerve in my right wrist as I injected before the ceremony. When the principal presented my diploma and shook my hand, I bit my lip to suppress the scream that surged from my belly to my throat. Inside the leatherette cover, note congratulated me for winning the most scholarship money but another demanded repayment of $62 from a candy sale, funds I had used to score a gram of meth. My classmates avoided eye contact when I staggered off the stage. They giggled and prodded one another, excited to launch the next chapter in their lives. I slumped in the plastic chair, dread suffocating me as I contemplated flunking out of college. I almost failed last semester skipping school so often, and UCLA is going to be so much harder. Maybe I'll get lucky and dive an overdose on a dorm floor. I snapped the folio shut. Jesus, is that my best option? How the fuck did I get here? Ten months earlier, after snorting crank for three days, I had fallen into the turbulent sleep of an overdue crash. I clawed my way to consciousness, then focused on the clock radio's fluorescent 708. Cindy, I shouted toward my sister's room. Is it a.m. or p.m.? God damn it, I'm sleeping because it's morning. I threw off the sheets, struggled to a sitting position, and waited for the dizziness to subside. As I stood, I planted my hand on the bed for balance. Trudging to my mirror, I examined the dark roots setting off my nice and easy blonde hair. Smeared mascara-framed bloodshot eyes above sunken cheeks, I held up my hand and watched it shake. Shit, I look like that old drunk at the Silver Fox who spent her days chained to a bar swool. I shuffled to the refrigerator and grappled with the Pepsi tab before I collapsed on the sofa and lit a cigarette. Like every other morning, I snatched my purse from the Formica coffee table and dug for my drug kit. No crank, just a few black beauties. Warm tears spurted down my cold face. It's okay, it's okay, you have the beauties. Weaker than meth, but at least these pills delivered an amphetamine high. Should I break them open, discard the time-released ebony granules and snort the powder for a more intense rush? My nostrils ached from overuse, so I swallowed too. As I waited for the energy burst, I smacked my cheeks. Pull together. You need meth. This early, Bub is your best bet. If you look trashed, he'll send you home. I spent the next hour constructing Mary Beth. Shower, blowout, hot rollers, another black beauty, frosted blue eyeshadow, marine shorts, and a breast-enhancing halter top. Scrutinizing my image again, I sh- straightened my shoulders, tossed my hair, and practiced a laugh, relief, a façade sufficient to hide the depths of my deterioration. I drove my Brown 73 Guy to Bordentown's four-city block center. High school dropout Baba worked as a mid-level drug dealer. At 20, he still lived with his parents in a narrow row house. I exchanged pleasantries with his mom as she spread her famous ham salad on Wonder Bread. Help yourself to a sandwich if you get hungry later. A bubba beckoned me over, and we walked a couple blocks to spend the day with Matt, his wife at work. The unemployed truck driver provided a safe haven in a tacit exchange for drugs. Proud of his chiseled body, Matt would use speed and then spend hours weightlifting. As we approached the two-story brick apartment building, Bubba tugged at his loose pants. Naturally plump, too much crank, and too little food had reduced his waistline. Mary Beth, if I'm not careful, I'll be crazy skinny like you. Hey, I've put on a couple pounds. Hmm, I've never seen a collarbone stick out like yours. Jesus, he's on this again? Yo, Bubba, just last week you gave me enough meth to choke a horse.
0: And I'll pause there. Wow. You are such a vivid writer. I love your use of dialogue. I love the character you create of yourself. Um, we're all, I call them characters because even in memoir, it's not us, right? It's who we remember ourselves as or who we construct ourselves as. Um, and, you know, what's so interesting is how um, unflinching you are about your own. Uh, character as a young woman and then the very next chapter you end about halfway through the chapter that first chapter is called my first shot and then the next chapter is almost like biblical genesis conception and it talks about your mother so um i structure my not my memoir similarly i start with my dad's death and i flash back you start with your first shot um which is this formative thing in your life and then you flash back to the basically your birth right so what made you structure it like that? Did you always know you were gonna start with the drug use and then flash
1: back to childhood to show the trauma? So when I, you know, when I thought started thinking about the memoir, and it was really when I was appointed a judge, it was sort of like a time of reflection. And it's like, how the heck did I do this? You know, go from teenage <laughs> crime, drug addict to to a judge. And so I started taking notes, but initially I really, um, I, I structured it chronologically. Like I started taking notes and then I started flesh, I put it in the notes in chapters and I started fleshing out, but I also started reading memoir because I had only read like two or three at the time. And I saw, you know, there are a variety of different structure um, options, but I really thought about the arc of the book. And so I decided that uh, I feel like a lot of memoirs sort of jump into the addiction and I wanted to show what led up to it. And so right. I, I wanted to show the trauma and my personal history so that it shows that why did it make sense for me to start drinking at 12 or shooting meth at 17. And then, of course, I have the chaos of the addiction like most memoirs. But I also found at the end, a lot of memoirs sort of go, well, I went to a couple of meetings and everything was great. And I, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to show what recovery really looks like. So 30 okay. percent of the book is that uh, is my recovery. Um, it's really the first three years. Um, so initially, I, I thought about all of that. I, so I put a structure in place. I stuck all my, you know, different sections I made notes of in different chapters. But then I thought, you know, it really needs to start with a bang. You know, like I really want the reader to understand literally and figuratively. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I want the reader to understand that when I say I was a junkie, that I mean it, you know, that I'm not just some judge not to, to minimize this. But it wasn't like I just had a problem with prescription drugs. Serious as that is, I wanted it to be clear that i I mean what I say. And I so I wanted to bring the reader into that moment of shooting, uh, shooting speed for the first time at 17 years old. But yeah. as you know, once you went in your first chapter, you've got to accomplish a lot of things. Right. So I've got to establish my character, as you say, my the time, the time period, the people around me. Um, I, I, I leave a, a thread about the abuses in there to sort of set the stage for that. Um, and all of those things are in the first chapter to really try to engage the reader right off the bat.
0: Yeah, and I mean your 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 story is just so perfect for a memoir. It just wouldn't feel the same in fiction. Um, people might not even believe it. To be <laughs> honest, yeah, I mean, um, and I think that part of the power in, as RuPaul says, taking what is your um, biggest stigma, the thing you're most ashamed of, and reappropriating it and making it your power making it your, um, your magic wand. Um, that's the power, right? Taking the fact you're a, a law school dropout, you went back, you ended up right back at the law school, you dropped out at UC Berkeley, graduated, me, I'm a high school dropout. And, you know, I hid that for many years as a lawyer when I was a corporate lawyer And, um, I never felt like myself, but then when you, when you own it, this is what owning it looks like (laughs) this beautiful 300. It's a long memoir. Um, mine is most memoirs are two to two fifties because I think you focus so much on the recovery, which I really loved. Um, you focus on your relationship with doc and he was, uh, who is your husband now and was your boyfriend for many years and, uh, saw you through this all in this journey. and there's something beautiful about someone knowing you back then and now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's, it, it shows up in a couple of with my sister, for example, that's sort of my real original war buddy, right? So <laughs> like, we grew up, we're only yeah. less than two years apart. We grew up in that yeah. environment. We experienced a lot. I mean, in different experiences, I was the oldest, you know, which sort of changes the dynamic and those kind of things. But yes, Doc. He was there when I, for many years, when I was really deep in my substance use disorder and then through my recovery. Now, I will say, when I went into treatment, he was not at all committed to staying with me. Like, he was really. Done. No, you you
0: make that clear.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it was done. But, you know, we worked hard and we stayed together. And now he does really have that context. I mean, when he read the book, there were a few things that he didn't know, but it wasn't like I was hiding them. I just never came up in conversation. Right. Um, But um, but it is a it is a, a joy of my uh, recovery to be in a long-term healthy relationship because I didn't even know that existed on earth. Like it wasn't on my list of things to attain because I didn't think it was real.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, seriously. I mean, I, I have this theory that, um, you know, people see you now and they may see you as a retired judge and an author, but do they really know you after reading your memoir? They might, but like, I think I stay friends with my two best friends from high school and I've been with my husband 30 years and I was a waitress. He was a mechanic when we met. Now he's a dentist and I'm a lawyer. And people that know me now don't really know me. The people who knew me when I was a kid that I'll see at a concert at a punk show or a post-punk show, they know me and they're like, Juanita, how are you? I can't believe you're a public defender. It's so ironic. Used to steal cars and dine and dash. Now you defend those people. I'm like, exactly. Um but do you know what I mean? Do you really like it must be so heartwarming to be with the same person that saw you and and saw your progression, right? And saw how hard you. I mean, you clearly are brilliant and gifted, and we're gonna talk about that and resilient. Um, so let's talk about how this book came to be. What so you started writing it and then what was the process? There's a lot of writers that watch this, and as we all know, it's not magic, it's hard work, perspiration, persistence, and
1: at the core of it, belief in yourself and belief you can do it. Yeah. So, I mean, I started taking notes in judge school, as we called it in 2014. Um, but, you know, I, I had, I had to read memoir to figure out what is this genre. And then I what read,
0: memoirs did you read? Like who were your favorite? Read,
1: I read Mary Carr. <laughs> I read some of the famous her. ones, you know, um, like yeah. Mackenzie Phillips. And, uh-huh. uh, and I read, I read a, a, a number of recovery, but some outside as well. Um but uh but what i'm mary cars with, lit is one of my favorite
0: books yes, of all yes. time as well as the, as the liars club she is a, a master memoirist just for the record yeah she
1: is but it was also it was also uh informative to me to realize oh this is written like a novel and at a nice. very detailed and specific level and with emotional connection as well as the reflection and the take so when i realized what it what a memoir is Involved, what the what the sort of the basics, the premises of it were. I realized I don't actually have that skill set. I mean, I was an excellent legal writer, and I was a good business writer before that. But to write like you know, in scene, immersive, to draw on those, I was used to consistent, to, to concise, right? The opposite, actually. The yes. Iraq and legal
0: writing, it it actually kind of uh, kills your creativity. It, it's, it's designed to be a opposite. formula.
1: Yes, yes. yes, you have to be short and brief. I mean, persuasive, good word choice, good right. structure or rhythm to your sentences, but it's very different. And so I actually started taking classes um to get the skills that I thought I needed and so I took some memoir classes but also some novel writing classes because Smart. writing a scene is the same for memoir as it is for novel you know do oh, the yeah. dialogues I took a 4 hour dialogue class I remember it doesn't matter what the genre is right Di- writing good dialogue is writing good dialogue and and I went to some writers conferences like where you do writing where your writing is evaluated Generative. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, and so and I also there started learning the business side, but I needed to get the skills. And so I worked really hard at uh, at getting the skills that I needed and implementing them and thinking, how should I how should I use what I've learned to my best advantage in my story, in my book? Um, And so, for example, my first editing pass, I cut twenty five. Uh, percent of the book out wow. um, and on work hand I'm actually fairly consistent 83,000 words which is you know about right for a memoir maybe slightly longer than an average but it's within it's within the norm but I what I realized was a lot of when I I had a lot of good stories but they really were sort of for the same point as a better story yeah. and I don't need all three of them you know it's going to bog the reader down I did a lot of different writing passes like I did a pass just to see if if I had enough of my if my emotions were in there where they needed to be um, I did a writing pass on reflection and takeaway. I did a pass to look at, make sure my themes fall through. I mean, I really did um, a lot of hard work to get the writing as good as I can get it, to, to give myself the best chance that people would actually read it and get value out of it.
0: And I have to say, I, I can really see the craft in it. Stephanie Barbie Hama, who's a writing professor, um, she used to teach comparative lit at UC Riverside, retired and is now a, a writing teacher for Hugo House and Landy and others. And she's the one that kind of helped me kind of hone my poetic voice. She writes a lot of magical realism, fiction, nonfiction, essay, poetry. And she says, what an opening, very compelling. And I do see the craft. I see the classes you took. I see the memoirs you read. And I probably read in my life. um, I'm a voracious reader. I can read a book a day if I want. It really helps me with this podcast. I don't think I'd be able to do (laughs) bi-monthly twice a month if I didn't read so quick, but, um, I've read hundreds of memoirs and I'll tell you, I can read the first page and know. I I know by the first page, whether I'm going to be drawn in or not. And so I'll go to a bookstore and sometimes I just go through the aisles of memoir and open up books and read the first page. And then I'll buy or uh, write down the books that draw me in and your book from the very first page. I mean, like I said, the first uh, there's a foreword and we're gonna talk about the foreword because I think the foreword's important. But you're by doing my first shot as your first chapter, um, and your first sentence is when I graduated from my New Jersey high school in 1979, I was an honor student and a junkie, right? That first sentence, you're setting your whole book up, right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So very well crafted. So um, the book starts with a foreword, okay? And not all books start with a foreword. Some do, some memoirs do, some don't. Your foreword is really interesting because it's by Dawn Nickel, who's the founder of She Recovers Foundation. She calls this more than a memoir. She says that this book is really also meant to save lives, not just tell your story, but to save lives. Was that your goal in writing this book? Not only to tell your story in a literary way, but to also show how recovery saved your life and can save someone else's life.
1: When I was thinking about it, I really thought about, do I have something to add to the genre? Do I have something to say? Is my story of value? Is my story, and it was a unique story to go from, right. you know, one to the other, but is it a value? And so I really thought about where where the value could be added. And part of that was reading others. And one of the things that I thought realized was my recovery is is secular. I I attended 12-step meetings and I incorporated some of the ideas, but it's not my foundation. And most memoirs are 12 steps. So I thought it was important to show how other people who do it the, the secular way approach it. And so I included that. I talk about the trauma substance use recovery, the interplay of those two in my memoir, which a lot of women face. A lot of women walk into recovery like I did with trauma histories or PTSD, anxiety, other mental health issues. Um, and also at the end, I have um, some guidelines and a checklist if specifically to try to help people who are thinking about um, trying to tackle a more individualized approach to their recovery to give them some tools. And so it was to sort of be an example of you can be anything in recovery, right? I mean, the title itself is basically you you can't even imagine what your life can be in recovery. But it was also to try to provide information and to, to try to provide an example and to try to provide some tools and techniques that other people can use.
0: So, talk about that. When you were doing this recovery guidelines and recovery checklist, like wh- how did you create that? Because that's very different as far as a very different skill set than writing a memoir.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, by then I had actually been talking a lot to recovery houses. And so I that caused me to really think about, you know, what were and and writing the book, what were some of the techniques that I used and how, how, why were they valuable? Like, what was the value in them? And then trying to synthesize it down to just a few pages of examples. It's not that it is not that I expect people to copy the way I approach it. It's more an example of the analysis and the thinking process um, and how you can make, you know, prioritizing where you need to do the work uh, making your initial plan. Like, for example, I really believe that in early recovery, it's nice to have five-year goals, but I don't think it's, the, it's important. I think that what's really important is to really figure out what are my Initial priorities. What are my initial goals for those priorities and what's my initial plan? Because the truth is, in early recovery, you don't actually know what you're going to want in two years or three years or five years because you don't know who you're going to grow into in those two years or three years or five years. What's important is getting that foundation that to build up a strong foundation. And so that's part of how I was just started to think about it as I was writing the book and doing some speaking. What what do I actually think helped me the most um, and what techniques can I offer people to consider as, um, as options that they might want to use in their own recovery foundation?
0: So interesting because I think what I really loved about your book are the things I didn't know about secular versus 12-step recovery. I'm not in a 12-step program, but I do know that they start the program by saying, hello, my name is so-and-so I am an alcoholic. That is not something that program that you're involved in does Um, you're kind of, uh, it's not that that's a negative thing necessarily, but you have a different perspective in the, in the recovery that you all do. You don't start a meeting like that. Right.
1: Well, so, um, when I first went into recovery and, and I went to 12 because so, first of all, they told me that's all there was. It <laughs> wasn't true, but that's what they told me. But yeah. I didn't mind in the beginning saying, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict, like over and over. I thought I needed to sort of beat it in my brain, right? Mm. But after about- Admit six it, months, come to the realization. To really fully yeah. absorb it, you know, to really yeah, yeah. Fully absorb it. But by six months, I felt uncomfortable. I, I felt like I was saying it as if it was the most important thing about me, mm. as if it was my lifetime defining characteristic, and I didn't think it was. I mean, I had sense. some sobriety under my belt, and it felt like yes, that's a part, that's my history, that's a part of who I am, but it's not the essence of who I am. And so, for example, um, the first option I found the 12 steps was women for sobriety, and in a woman for sobriety meeting, the introduction is I'm Mary Beth, and I'm a competent woman. Wow. And when I um, that I, I mean, honestly, the hairs on my arms raised up, I felt like I could sort of stand tall, and it met me where I was. And for me, that's yeah. an example that what works for us at one point in our recovery may not be useful later. In um, the groups I'm in, like LifeRing. People can choose to call themselves whatever they want. And some people do say I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict, but other people don't, or they say something different. It's up to the individual in life range to decide how they want to identify themselves. It's an individual choice. And to me, I think that's where we need to be. If it's helpful to you to say I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict for, you know, five or 10 years, great do that. But you know, there are other approaches and if it's not working for you, stop, You know, do something
0: no. else. Yeah, I get it. Because even if I did want to say I had this issue, um, for me, it would be drinking. That is not all there is to me. Yeah. You know, there, that really isn't, I've done so much more. And I do so much more without the alcohol stuff, that I think that um, to me, it's a little, I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way. Um, To me, it feels demeaning to call myself that. And that's not to say I don't acknowledge that I have issues. I do. But it's almost like with my anxiety, I would never start a sentence saying I have anxiety disorder. I would start a sentence by saying I'm a deputy public defender, a writer, a lawyer, a performer, and I also have an anxiety issue, you know, and I always have to deal with that in my whole life because it is pervasive. It does affect your life domains, but it, it does not define me. Do you know what I'm saying? That's how I found about it. I mean, look, for
1: some people, they find it grounding to right, say, right, again, so it's really about, is it working for you? And mm. also, you know, it's for me, it's also a part of the reality of recovery is that our plan, our recovery plan should change over time, right? Okay. Because well, what works for us or what we, what our plan should involve, like, let's say at 30 days or 60 days versus six months or a year, it's going to be different because hopefully we've achieved some of our initial goals. And now yeah. we can set what's the right next step or what's an area I couldn't work on in the beginning, but now I, I have the bandwidth to add it in or it should be evolving. Your recovery plan should yeah. be here it should be evolving well, with time. And that's just- amazing. And you're getting
0: older, there's health issues, there's menopause, there's all these other things that affect like your life and your health and your wellness and that rear its ugly head. There's deaths, there's disabilities. Um, I, get, I mean, that really does make sense to me. And um, I did wanna say, you know, as someone who's done some drugs in her life and I won't say it. fine, um, you, you describe drug use very viscerally to where having done some of this stuff, I was like, oh, I almost can't read it. It's like uh, Bringing back how it felt like snorting this or doing that. I never shot up or anything like that, but I did uh, dabble in some other stuff. And I think that's what to me um, really made it wrong, not just about your character, but about the drug use, about the trauma. Um, let's get to the structure of the book. Like I said, you start with the first shot. You flash back to childhood, which really makes this a traditional literary memoir in many ways. The character of your mother, who's now passed, um, and she died very young, right? 72. She was young. Yeah, relatively young for a female, um, is at the heart of all this and how the trauma brought on by her relationships and the stepfather that you had one good stepfather, one really horrible, um, abusive, uh, sexually, like all kinds of stuff a demeaning, uh, just very uh, viscerally abusive stepfather that put you through so much trauma and caused so much of your uh, hard life as a young woman. Um, So how hard was it to write that stuff? And, and, And then the second part of my question is, how did you access those memories and your younger self voice? And how did you take care of yourself while you were reliving what is essentially your PTSD memories? writing this memoir, because a lot of this book it's beautifully written. It's not a traumatic book to read in any way. I, I found it very enjoyable to read. And that's a testament to your writing. Uh, because we we so know this character, and we're kind of living her life. And there are moments of joy and fun, of course, like any memoir, but there's a lot of trauma here. Yeah, so I mean, so I started taking notes when I had 20
1: years sober, right? And yeah. so. I had done a lot of, when I got, um, when I got home from rehab, I started therapy right away. I did individual therapy for several years. My, my husband and I did couples counseling. I, I did meds for anxiety for a couple of years. And I also then, one of the big steps for me was I, um, my therapist recommended me to a, a, a group therapy of women with trauma histories. And that mm-hmm. was like a massive step forward in recovery for me. Um, wow. Because they were connecting current reactions and behaviors to the trauma in ways that I hadn't yet connected it. So it really helped me better understand my own sort of um, emotional development, my own current behavior that was trauma-related, that that was really- Sober connected. or not, right? Yes, even in, in sobriety. I mean, I didn't start that group until I had three years sober. Um, So by the time I'm writing the- and, and, and I will also say that my- my trauma recovery, my PTSD and anxiety recovery took much longer than my substance recovery. Much, much longer. I really didn't struggle with substances after the first two and a half to three years. I was in therapy and struggling with my anxiety for over 10 years. It took a lot. I mean, I was getting better, gradually better, 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 but it was a much, it was more complicated and it was older. It came first, right? Yeah. Um, So by the time- Yeah, the substance abuse was a way to- to quell yes 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 so so by 20 years so when i started taking notes about the book i had done a lot of work but i hadn't really looked at it in a quite a few years by that point point. Mm. and so it was an opportunity to revisit it so for example you ask you know what techniques did i use so when i realized that you know memoir is written that in that immersive insane way one of the techniques i was taught was you know you shut your eyes you imagine the room where what what what's the furniture? What's the color of the walls? Where are people standing? What are they wearing? What's the body language? What are the words? What was I feeling? And so I used that often. I would shut my eyes and put myself back there, um, and that was um, hard sometimes. Yeah. But also, but really, overall, what I got about running the memoir emotionally was um, was a, a a really strong reminder of some of my strengths and Mm. uh, and first of all, first of all, how lucky I was to be alive, but also that I did do things to try to reduce the violence. I did do things to try to take the control that I could to protect my siblings. Um, And then there was a decision that I made in the middle of a, a, a rape that haunted me really for two decades. And when I wrote that in the book, when I was writing wow. that part of the book, it really fully released me from any self-criticism. Yeah. It made me really realize, no, I made the right decision. Like oh, there was yeah. no realistic other choice. Like, you know, I made the right decision. I and I I came out alive because I I did I did my best to hold my emotions at bay and deal yeah. with the situation. Right. And so that really released the second guessing that had been sort of nagging at me for a long time. So there were definitely some positives, even though at times it was difficult.
0: I mean, that that I don't want to give anything away. I'll let people read the book. But what I took away the same exact thing from that, that chapter and that story was that you were a resilient, so bright, so gifted, so, um, on your feet, kind of always thinking ahead, because you had had so much trauma and, and had to navigate and mediate your whole life, you were able to figure out a way to live. Uh, you probably would not be alive if you had been a sheltered person, right? Um, yeah, I think I think for sure. I mean, and I'm I'm so happy it released you uh, from that. I call uh, writing memoir at least the way I do, and it sounds the way like you do it. It's channeling, right? We're yeah. channeling these memories. Sometimes the stories can come out very easy. Sometimes they come out very hard um, and they need working. But um, I think there is a beauty to it. And it's to me, it's always about, people say, is every word in the memoir what was said? And I always say, well, it's the truth. It's my truth. And it's what I heard as a young girl and what I remember. So I would say yes, but I would also say, That all memoir that's told and seen, and you can, Frank McCourt, who's passed, used to say that, this, and um, David Sedaris has called his truth-ish, it's not not all going to be literally, like, word for word, verbatim, but do you capture the cadence? Do you capture the substance? Do you capture the truth, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, for example, there's a scene where I, I say I was wearing this blue baby doll. I know I had that baby doll oh, at yeah. that period of time. I can't say a word that day, but I yeah. know I had it at that time. And so it, it was time, place, consistent. It was also a reminder of how young I was, that I was wearing a little baby doll, yeah. you know, nightgown and, and other reasons. And the dialogue, yeah. I mean, generally, I remember the gist of it and some yeah, of yeah. the were very clear like I have a very clear memory of certain words but that's not like I'm sure it's not what if you would you know, have a camera time machine back in time I, I'm sure it's not 100% accurate but I'm confident that it is accurate to my memory and that it exactly. is with what happened in real life um and and a lot yeah. of it I do remember because it you know Thank the thing when you're involved in those intense emotions, your memory is imprinted in a different way than a, than a regular memory, right? You have a, a a stronger memory when you have that strong of an emotional connection to it because something hard is happening. It's funny because yeah. the other day my sister said to me about an event that wasn't a big event in the book, but she, you know, she did something. She said, I don't remember that. I said, well, probably to you, it wasn't like a big event, but to me, I ran into a garbage can and banged my head. I remember, <laughs> it, you know, like, so, um, so there's some of that as well, but yes, I mean, I so
0: always you, say that my sisters will say, you write all the hard stories. You write the sad stories, what write all the happy stories. And I said, yeah, but you know, I mostly remember the hard stories and I remember the happy days too. Don't get me wrong, but they're not, I think you're right. The imprint is different. Um, You know, what's so interesting to me is that um, the therapy and the work you had to do and how much work you had to work through that trauma, you know, and that that took longer than the actual, you know, working through the substance abuse and recovery, which I know is a lifelong thing, but like that working through the trauma, right, and um And working through that and being able to talk about it and tell your story so viscerally. um, How did you navigate your family's feelings? Was that a hard thing? Did you have to um, talk to your sister or other family members and say, look, I'm going to write this? Or did you just write it and then kind of go to them and be like, this is what it is. It is what it is.
1: I mean, I would recommend for everyone that they just write it Mm what they need to write, and then you can decide what you're going to do with it. Um, For me, um, my mother did die in 2014, shortly before I even took a note, and so she was gone. Uh, My stepfather actually didn't die until I had already signed my publication deal, but the book hadn't yet come out. But that it look it was easier. It, I was glad in a way glad because it just took away a risk that he was going to try to cause trouble. Not that I thought he could, you know, win a lawsuit or anything because it was true and other people could attest to it, but it, it reduced the, the risk that he was going to cause a problem. My sister was comfortable. She saw um a, a, several of the chapters that she was in and she was comfortable. Um, And of course she didn't even have my last name. I mean, you'd have to know she was my sister. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, but, and my other family members, mostly for them, it was really that they, they knew uh, things weren't great, but they didn't really appreciate how bad things were. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that the next generation, my sister's kids, they, they struggle with it a bit because they knew my mother in a different context, right. Mm. In a a positive way. And, and I will also say, I mean, I really did my best to be fair to my mother, to not, and, you know, she's. She's not a monster. There were some reasons for her behavior. And sometimes she did positive things. And I tried to be balanced about that. Um, But it was
0: very balanced in that. I said, I I think, I think you did the best you could. Right. I
1: mean, with what you had to work with who she was. Right. Yeah. With who she was. But, you know, I mean, it. Important in memoir, as they say, don't make it, you know, it's not a revenge thing, right? It's the, no. You want to be accurate, and the person is rarely 100% good or 100% bad. And so it's important to show the whole picture to the best of your ability. Um, and it all, it's also good, as you say, to show some of the lighter moments. I mean, I try to break up the hard parts. Like, there's a s- chapter about the science of, of substance use disorder. It's where it is to break up tough mm. t- t- factors, you know, to give the reader a breather. Yeah. Um, and there's some stories about my sister and me that are there for that same purpose to really help you understand our connection, but also to have like a funny story, you know, to, to, to breathe for a second and not just have it be slamming you for 24, you know, for every page. Um, so there are those choices that are important when you're writing a memoir as well.
0: Definitely. And let's talk about this, you know, the title from junkie to judge one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. And this really tells your whole history. It talks about how You know, you started using uh, drugs when you were 17. You made it through UCLA, graduated with like a 3.5, and then went to UC Berkeley Law School, dropped out, then later went back to law school, and then transferred back to UC Berkeley, graduated and became a judge and all that. This book is called From Junkie to Judge. You published this once you retired, and that was purposeful?
1: Yeah, so I had started writing, as I said earlier, I, I had thought about once, well, first of all, I wasn't making a decision about whether I would wait to retirement until I was done with the book, right? Like okay. there was no reason to make that. And also, I mean, I did I, I did actually talk to a lawyer about could they stop me. I knew they wouldn't be happy with me, but really I could have. There's not anything that they could have done to me except, you know, try to make my life a little miserable. Um, but it just turned out that I ended up retiring when I, before I was done. And so it was easier. It was simpler. The other thing that made it simpler for me is I never used as a lawyer. I was never right. used. Drugs as a lawyer. So I didn't have that, you know, old cases could come back and pop up their ugly head or anything. And so some of those factors made things cleaner. And I oh, was for sure. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I, I wrote it and I talked now because the reality is that most professional people hesitate to be open about their recovery because they're afraid of the ramifications. You know, they, they don't know how people are going to judge them or what they'll think about them. And being retired just Freed me, you know. I can say anything. I can. I feel like I'm sort of standing in the place of people who aren't able to speak because of legitimate professional concerns. Um, I mean, it's yeah. nice that more people are being open about the recovery. That's great. But you know, it, you still have to really think about it. And so the fact that I was retired before I was finished turned out to be an advantage because I can talk hundred percent openly about everything. And there, you know, I, there's no consequences besides some people I don't know might not like yeah. me. You know,
0: so. you know um, I had thought about um, going for an appointment to the state bench at one point, and I'm really glad I never want, I never really could incarcerate someone was my issue. Um, I don't believe in incarceration. I believe that the system we work within is a racist system based on slavery. And I'm basically an abolitionist now, so I couldn't go into the field. But at the time, I hadn't come to that realization yet. And I really don't think I would be writing um, and speaking and performing memoir about my misspent youth and my juvenile delinquency and my crazy years and, you know, how far I've come and how it translates to punk rock and um, representing the most voiceless and oppressed. If I, because I don't think people understand especially the federal judges, how much you're not allowed to really have a public voice. You really are there to do your job and to put it on the page and to make your decisions. And because of that, a lot of judges, um, at least in state court from the state judges, many of people at our office have went to the bench they they really can't be friends with us anymore they they have to um shor- they have to make their circle kind of smaller other judges and i think that's a hard life right um i always felt like would i want my voice to be censored you know
1: Yeah. I mean, I did feel that, for example, I never made any public political statements Mm -hmm. Um, when Mm -hmm. I was a judge. I stopped giving to my political party. I would give to social organizations, but not political organizations. I didn't feel it was appropriate for me. Right. Right. uh, Even, you know, even though I was only doing certain kinds of cases. And so you do feel, I mean, there were the rules and I had limits because of the rules, but I went further than that because I just felt it was inappropriate for me to, to publicly be out about any of those things. Um, yeah. and so yeah, there, you are a little bit more constrained, although I will say somebody said to me once, what if somebody comes into your hearing room and they actually know that you used to, you know, have a drug history. And, but I mean, again, by the time I was a judge, I had 20 years so I was like, hey, yeah. I'm here. I, it's, it's not like, yeah. I've been like, yeah, that's true. And then I would, let's yeah. move on. You know, like it's not a yeah. big deal. Um, but to stand up publicly is is a different challenge, and we all need to be uh, intentional about that. Because the truth is, I mean, my first true public statement was in the Wall Street Journal. I admitted that I had been a former meth addict. You can't ever take that back. Like, yeah. you know, once you do it, it's out there for life, right? And so we just have to know. And the headline doing. is "Judge
0: to Junkie." I mean, that's why the title of your or. Uh, I'm sorry, junkie to judge. That's why the title of your memoir is so perfect, because that's what the headline would be in the newspaper after you do that op-ed, you know, current, you know, former judge admits to being a meth user. And it's, it's, it is so freeing. I mean, the, one of the judges I respect the most, I'll leave his name unnamed is a state court judge that is a veteran that, um, is very open about his, um, alcoholism and about his 12 step recovery. And he would tell, um, people that came into his courtroom, you know, when he did mental health court and veterans court. And I really thought he was a better judge for it.
1: Well, I will say the truth is our society judges alcohol differently than the other drugs. Oh,
0: very true. I mean, mean,
1: the reality is that, you know, it's funny. People say, I never did any drugs. And I say, not even alcohol. And they're like, oh, yeah. Well, alcohol is a liquid legal drug. That's what it is, right? Your body Mm -hmm. doesn't have a difference. Your brain. There's actually, from a health perspective, there's no rational reason why alcohol would be legal and cannabis wasn't. I mean, it doesn't, there's no logical um, distinction there. In fact, cannabis is less harmful than alcohol from everything. Yeah, people get way
0: more violent on alcohol than they ever you never see a stoner like hey dude, you want to fight? They're just eating and like, yeah, they shouldn't be driving but they're pretty mellow, you know?
1: I mean, it's not risk-free. Some people get psychotic tendencies. Especially
0: now. But the
1: cultivation exactly but it's still uh, if you're going to pick one it's less dangerous than alcohol so but alcohol is in a different category it's easier to admit that you had an alcohol problem than any Mm. other type of drug problem and so there's that distinction and one of the reasons i will say the junkie word like i would never call somebody else a junkie right i mean there's a certain negative connotation but i chose it on purpose i mean first of all the alliteration is nice right yeah but I also really wanted to own my IV meth history. I Mm. I, I feel when I see IV meth users in the media, like on television, they're sort of presented as if, these people are so far gone, they're not even w- worth helping. Like, you know, there's sort of this net. Like, mm-hmm. How could anybody live like that? How, you know, there's a real judgmental, stigmatizing attitude about it. Yeah. So Almost much- like
0: that image of like Sid Vicious as a heroin user shooting up, you know, in an alley or Johnny Thunder is like passed out. Like, they're just gone. Like, that's
1: all they do. That's all they are, right? Right, or that they're, so, or that they're, they're like so different from us that we can't even right. understand them. And so I wanted to really say out loud, mm-hmm. I shot meth, not for a little time, for basically fifteen years, and um, wow. and I got service. So I wanted to own that history. It's one big reason I chose to use that word, Ugh. and be and I, and part that's of that's so I,
0: beautiful. <laughs> you totally take that power back, you know.
1: Yes, yes, that exactly, and and but also to say, look if I got well, so can the person you're judging, you know, that other person can get well too. But also she's a real person, even if she never gets sober, she's a human being who probably is there because of trauma, who probably is there because of pain. And so let's at least give her empathy. I mean, on top of which we should give her help, you know, which is not, is not as readily available in America as most people seem to think it is. I mean, for a lot of people getting treatment, it can be a real challenge. Um, But yeah, I wanted to own it. I wanted, and that's also part of the reason First Shot is the first chapter. I wanted to own that.
0: And you own your privilege in it too, you know, as a white cis woman, um, you know, you own the fact that you're able to, you know, get pulled over, maybe not get searched, only arrested once. Uh, You know, my clientele, when I first started as a public defender for years before the drug laws changed and now everything is essentially a misdemeanor. Um, that, um, is not, um, they're not going to do real time. They'll do counting time, but they're not going to do long jail sentences for a meth possession. But when I started as a public defender, I ran drug court, I ran a program called rock and, um, I also did drug arraignments and I would plead clients out because I had to as a public defender, they get an offer. You have to plead them out. If they accept it, you can refuse to join if we, you don't have the drug results, but you can't refuse to plead them out. You have to advise them. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of clients I pled out to 32 months for 0.5 grams of meth, um, which is this, I mean, it's not even a usable quantity really. And we, a lot of cases were residue actually when they would come back and we have to withdraw the plea later, but I can't tell you how many clients I pled out for less than a gram of meth um, to prison terms. And I, I'm not talking about low level. I'm talking about 32 months, I'm talking about 48 months, I'm talking about three years, I'm talking about two years, and back then, they did
1: about 70% of their time. See that, I mean, look, I I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times that got reprinted around the country about the privilege side of it, right, That, that, you know, the reality, look... I support decriminalization for personal use and one of the main reasons although there are a number of reasons like for example that we define substance use disorder the government defines it as a disease and yet it criminalizes it well that's It's a in the DSM5 now.
0: It's there is drug. no argument
1: Um, But on top of that, it is the racial disparity, right? If you are, and I was aware of this at the time, for the last 10 years that I was using, I had drugs on me every single day and I was pulled off over multiple times by the police for minor accidents or tickets. And I was never searched. And I was aware at the time that I was getting away with it because I was a white middle-class woman. And so I wrote the op-ed to talk about that racial disparity, right? That a person of color is much more likely to get pulled over. If they're pulled over, they're much more likely to get searched. If drugs are found, they're more likely to be charged. The charges are going to be higher and the sentences are going to be longer. And it's like at every step of the process, there's a racial disparity. And so I I can't
0: tell you how many times cops threw away shit for us. (laughs) Even if we were searched or something, they would throw away the joint or throw away my friends, whatever, you know, and um, it's because we're young good looking women and they didn't want to take us in for something like that, you know, they knew what the impact would be on our lives.
1: Right, but there's the same impact on you know the person. hundred percent. I mean, there's so many consequences of getting that conviction, especially if it's a felony. But even if it's not, it follows people for years. I mean, people get kicked out of public housing; they can't get benef- certain benefits on top of trying to find a job. So, um, so I mean, I look. I worked hard for my education. I worked hard to become a judge, but I also had an advantage, and I understand That's that and recognize that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I always say this, I say, you know, drug possession was always should have been a dismissal or a misdemeanor. It was never a felony. And the prosecutors that, um, prosecuted felony drug possession for smaller quantities and meth for people for personal use. We're not talking drug dealers here at all, even though they would always charge people for drug for sales, even if they were just yeah. holding a large Costco kind of stash. Um, and, um, The thing I would always say, it was always a misdemeanor. And when the law changed, prosecutors were fine with that. It was always that. And so there's something wrong when the district attorneys and the prosecutors, they don't understand that there is a higher law. There is a higher code. There is a higher truth to justice. And that, you know, I think in Central America, um, if you are caught with drugs, they say in, in some countries, do you want treatment? No. Okay, your case is dismissed. Do you want treatment? Yes. Okay, your case is dismissed. So it's really about treating the pain and the trauma and and the addiction.
1: It's not about punishment, right? Well, I mean, it's like Portugal decriminalized person used basically exactly. right but they didn't just do that i mean what they did was they took the money that would have been spent on people being in jail which by the way you could treat like three or four people for every person in jail for the same amount of money right it's not a cost-effective approach Sixty um, thousand a year to keep someone in county yeah. jail but, but but right which is like 14 or 12 or something for people in a lower cost uh treatment program but portugal repurposed the money and gave mm-hmm. support Right. So they gave, you know, treat more treatment beds and, um, but also job supports when you get out, when you get sobriety, you know, getting people to help them get jobs. And, every, you know, the substance use disorder rate went down. The crime rate yeah. went down because people weren't having to, um, you know, commit crimes in order to get money because the drug prices went down. Uh, and so there were a lot of positive benefits. But the reality is, if somebody's using drugs, they either have a substance use disorder, which we all, the government itself and as you say the dsm recognizes as a mental health issue or they're doing it for personal use and if they're not hurting anybody why do i care you know i don't care 100%. <laughs> i would always
0: tell the do is dude prosecute the robbery don't prosecute the yeah. meth possession because i mean they're about for the grace of whoever go all of us and you know I used to always say I became a public defender because I really saw myself in my community. And then one day I literally saw my cousin in the box. And they're like, oh, that guy's saying he's your cousin. And I was like, that's Milky Eye. Hi, Milky Eye. And it was my cousin. I had to kind of put a wall and let another attorney take his case and all that. And we got him a program because he had a strike. So we got him Delancey Street, which is a big program in L.A. um, that deals with more high-level cases, you know, two years of work recovery. It is uh, religious-based. And I want to talk about that because really I think what's so unique about your book and so powerful for those of us who kind of have a distrust of maybe the religious model where you have to kind of give it up to God and all that. And being a Catholic, I'm not saying that I'm like, whatever, but for the people that are not believers and not into religion and not into like this concept of this 12 step religious based programming, you really talk about how you do a secular recovery. So talk about that. For those of people who do want recovery, like how do you find a program that works for you? Talk about the programs you know of. That way, if anyone's watching this, that is looking, I would say, first of all, buy um, Mary Beth O'Connor's book, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. She gives a whole checklist. There's so much information here, but talk about the pathways to secular recovery. It is not a one fits all kind of model.
1: No, I mean, there are a lot of options. Look, 12 steps is a good fit for many, but not even many faith-based people do the secular options because they don't like other aspects of the 12 steps. Like They don't like the sponsor side or they don't like the rigidity of it. So, But they're also atheists who make 12-step work, right? Yeah, yeah. But but the important thing is that people know they have choice, so They can find the right fit and increase their odds of success. If you're with your people, if you're in a place you're comfortable, you're going to do better. And study that the studies show that all the peer support groups are equally effective. So there is... Uh-huh. Life ring secular recovery, which I'm on the board for, and they th- they're uh, they call it the three S's sobriety, which by the way includes medication assisted treatment for substance use disorder, that counts as sober at Life ring. Um, but it's so like, the
0: people that have to take, um, what is the alcohol, um,
1: suboxone or, 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 or methadone or buprenorphine, any of that, if you're taking it as prescribed, which is a really important caveat, that right. counts as sober for us. Um but it's but and then it's secular as in there's no religion in the meetings, but many people have personal religious beliefs that go or spiritual beliefs that attend life ring. That life ring doesn't care, it's no opinion. Um and then it's self-empowerment focused. So it's about It's the belief that um, that that we need a personal recovery plan, that what works for me might not work for you, that my plan will look different than yours. And it's about using the group um, for some ideas and suggestions. But also we have a workbook to help people think through what their plan might look like. Uh, But it's about doing the analysis. It's it's not that you do it alone. Personal recovery plan isn't alone. It means you are the decision maker. What's going in my plan? How am I going to approach this? What's my plan look like today? What's it look like in 90 days? I decide. Um, But it's still with input. And if you want support, that's great. There's Women for Sobriety I mentioned. They are a a self-empowerment group. They focus on positive affirmations and rebuilding your life and letting go of the past. There's smart recovery. Smart recovery is a um, cognitive therapy based approach. There's recovery dharma, which is Buddhist based, meditation, mindfulness focused. There's She Recovers Foundation. I'm on the board for She Recovers. She Recovers isn't just for substance recovery; it's also for trauma recovery, mental health recovery, eating disorders, you know, um, self harm, overwork. Because most women with a substance use disorder have one or more of those other areas to work on. And then she recovers you. It's sort of all together. So you can talk about the inner play of these things. You don't have mm. to isolate them. And there are other options besides these. And so for me, what's important is that we, here's where I think we go wrong. People go wrong when they say this worked for me, therefore it will work for everyone or even worse. It's the only thing that works. That's wow. where you get into trouble. What we should be saying is, The person in front of me, what's going to help them? I think it's okay to say, here's how I did it. Please, you might want to consider this as an option, as an idea. But here are these other options. Go read up on them. Not any of the philosophy is different. The meeting formats are different. So look at what the philosophy is. Look at what the meeting format is. I really think even if you just look at the groups I mentioned, one or two of them are going to sound like my people are in that meeting. Wow. That's consistent with my worldview. Go there. And the other thing you know is you don't have to pick one. Life range, she recovers. A lot of our members also do 12 steps, also do SMART, also do Women First Party. And that's fine with us because we only care about what will help you get the best solid foundation for your recovery. So those are just some of the ideas around a secular recovery.
0: I love it because it's not just about a secular recovery. It's about a co-occurring Kind of disorder recovery, looking at all your issues holistically. How can you best build your life back up? That none of us are just our trauma, just our addiction. We're all these full fledged people that have lived full fledged, amazing lives. And everyone, I just want to say, you went from this gifted student to this college student to law school, dropped out, then back at law school, then to judgeship and um, law practice. Then you became a judge. And I just think that it's your your story is this wonderful story that could be made into obviously a big movie or something. But what I love most about it is your what you just talked about your philosophy of recovery that this you're not writing this book just to tell your story, right? And um, I think a lot of memoirists like I wrote my book to reach out to high school dropouts to show them that your first act is not your last, and you wrote this book to show that there is a path. Right, and um, my twin sister's here, she's been sober for years. She's um, she uh, you know, I know it's anonymous, but she said I could say it. Um, and she says, uh, can't wait to read your book. Um, there's many paths sob- to sobriety. Cindy Nessinger says, I agree, Judge. Um, and I just think, I just think that it's if you want to read, um, I, I almost don't want to end, but I really want people who came in a little later to hear your writing voice again. And Stephanie, uh, Barbie Hammer says it's great to hear you both talk about recovery and advocacy. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Um. I mean, it's so amazing how outspoken you are. And I know you're retired. You can do that now. But there's a lot of people that still won't speak up for their communities because there is a stigma. We always want to be us versus them as opposed to us being one of them. You know, I always say um, I see myself in my clients. I see that little girl who used to you know steal a car or steal makeup from target and I get it it's 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 about you know this rebellion this acting out this keep trying to you know kind of for want of a better term muffle our pain with substances and with behaviors and so I just want to applaud you for using your voice to really try to save lives I mean this book could save lives anyone um, that you know um that is struggling with addiction please read it send them this book buy this book and um if if people share this podcast i have a free copy that that i will mail to someone i'll do a drawing so please tag me if you share it on your wall and um i'll send um the winner of the drawing out a copy of the extra copy i have i bought a couple copies from junkie to judge. And I know my twin sister is going to make me send her one. So I'll send her one too, or she can get one because I know she wants to support you. So do you mind ending
1: with the reading? Sure, sure. So um, that first chapter um, in between, I try to snort the meth, right? With Bubba and, and, uh, and I can't because my nose is so clogged. So this is what happens. Um, he says, well, sweetie, Bubba said. I think we need to pop your cherry. You're going to have to shoot up. An ecstatic tingle pulsed through my body as I anticipated a new high. To prevent Bubba from witnessing my ear-to-ear grin, which might worry him enough to change his mind, I gathered the paraphernalia. Matt snagged a pristine hypodermic, a set of works from his wife's dresser. Eyeballing my share, Bubba grasped the razor blade and swept crank from the pile into a tablespoon. Having watched others, I knew how to prepare the shot. Removing the orange cap from the set took more force than expected. I gasped when I heard the resounding snap of success. I drew up a small amount of water and slowly squirted it onto the meth. With the flat end of the plunger, I crushed the particles until they dissolved into liquid. To avoid losing even one drop, I scraped the residue on the spoon's inner rim and watched it flow toward the mixture. I wadded up a tiny piece of cotton, centered that ball in the speed puddle, then positioned the needle against it to suck the elixir into the syringe. To remove any air bubbles, I flicked the plastic barrel and guided the crank to the top. Matt handed me his belt and I tied off my upper arm. Bubba smacked the pit on my inner elbow to raise the blood vessels. I twice clenched and unclenched my hand before making a fist. I slammed my arm on the glass tabletop, almost knocking the ashtray to the floor. Bubba placed the works at an angle, tapping until the point punctured my skin. He wiggled the hypodermic a bit and then withdrew it. You have baby veins, so it's easy to miss. You gotta push hard enough so they don't roll. Not too hard or you'll go through them. On the second try, as he eased the tip forward, a minute curl of blood penetrated the syringe. Bubba retracted the plunger and bright red fluid gushed in, mingling with the clear speed. I loosened the belt. He pulled back slightly until a fresh droplet emerged, indicating the needle remained in place. Bubba mainline, the blood speed amalgam with one graceful stroke. My muscles twitched as I visualized the drug racing toward my brain. An ether taste rose from my throat. I gazed upward and coughed. My eyes wobbled in their sockets. Spasms in my gut made me hunch over. Adrenaline and euphoria flooded every cell. A blaze ignited inside me and irradiated the room. Gripping Bubba's thigh, I opened my mouth to describe the shimmering paint, gleaming mirror, and throbbing music, but could not formulate the words or even a thank you. I giggled and held up my palms the way a child does when spotting a stack of gifts. I clutched my seat as the glorious power flowed through me. And I wondered if this is what happiness felt like. I took a deep, elated breath and sang my new mantra. When can I do it again?
0: Wow. You capture it. I talk a lot about, the, you know, being at a club and drinking and being like, this is joy. This is life. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. You capture that euphoria and the release from all of your hard you know, young life that you were dealing with, that this is the escape, right?
1: This is the escape. This is the main management tool. I didn't keep going because it was bad experience the first time. I kept going because it seemed to help. And for a while, it did. It's just that in the long run, it turned on me. But in the beginning, it seemed to help. And it was the most joyous and powerful, positive emotions I'd ever felt in my life
0: that line and sang my new mantra. When can I do it again? And before that, I wondered if this was happening, what happiness felt like so beautifully written. Thank you. You are such a gorgeous prose writer. Is there anything new on the horizon for you working on your second book? I think I'm for writing, I'll be doing
1: mostly opinion pieces now, but it's really speaking. I mean, I have a lot of speaking engagements. I'm getting ready to go to New York, and then I'm heading to a conference in Ohio. So I'm really doing everything I can. If anyone, you know, if I can be of use, be of service, people can always uh-huh. reach me through my website and, you know, message me. I'm easy to find with that junketed judge title. Um, but that's really my goal is to really just be as um, uh, as useful as I can at this point.
0: Wow. Uh, We have people saying powerful
1: um, claps. And again, where can people find you? So my website is junketedjudge.com. My Twitter is at Mary Beth O underscore. And I actually use my Twitter feed to share ideas and information. I don't spend time arguing with people. Um, And then the book, of course, is on Amazon. All the usual sites where your bookstore will have it or can get it.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you. It is such an honor. Thank you, Judge. Mary Beth O'Connor, writer, author of the epic memoir. This is gonna this is up there with Drinking a Love Story, another great memoir by Carolyn Knapp for those who love recovery memoir. Um, from junkie to judge one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction i have to tell you all it really is a literary memoir this is written like a a novel and it's so beautifully done and yes at the end there's a lot of recovery stuff little checklist and stuff but it's really um a testament to your writing that this reads like fiction it does even though it's true that
1: was the goal. So I'm glad I hear I achieved it. <laughs>
0: you did. You're a beautiful writer. Thank you again. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh Life of Gem is taking a hiatus. When I do come back, um, I, I'm on this kind of trauma kick. Um I have, I'm going to have on Lynn Forney, who wrote this wonderful book, Choosing Survival, How I Endured a Brutal, Brutal Attack and a Lifetime of Trauma Through the Power of Action, Choice, and Self-Expression. Lynn Forney is going to be on, and I have a, cu- a couple more people coming on, including uh, Victoria Waddle who wrote a beautiful book that you can find through bamboo dart about the loss of her pet. And um, I just have to say my twin, Jackie, my wonder twin said, thanks so much for sharing your truth judge. So
1: thank you.
0: Okay. Thanks again. Um, If you ever want to come on again, you put out a second book. I mean, I really do think you need to write another book. This can't be the only one because you're (laughs) such a great writer. You're so talented. So thank you again. Bye everyone. Have a good night.